Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElroy. And I'm Jeff Carlson. Today, we're happy to welcome back to the show Brian Jones. Brian is a retinal neuroscientist. I just love saying that. Brian, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. It's always fun. We wanted to talk about the fact that color doesn't exist. And this is partly to justify my purchase of a midlife crisis camera, which we spoke about on the show a couple months ago, um, the Leica Q2 monochrome. It's like if color doesn't exist, why not have a monochrome camera, right? Wait, 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 wait. Color doesn't exist? Which part of this did I forget about? <laughs> oh, physics. Yeah, but but physics has nothing to do with photography. Come on. Give me a break. <laughs> no, this was something that came up in our last conversation, I think actually after we had stopped recording. Uh, and I'll point listeners to our previous uh, episode where you were our guest. And I think it was just an offhand comment about, oh, well, you know that color doesn't exist. And I think I saw Kirk's eyes just like open up and have little spidey sense tingles all over him. And so we had to have you back on to talk about this. Well, I knew this. I knew about this. But what ah. I find interesting is when you explain this to people who are photographers, it can... I did a podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. I did a podcast on Mac Voices with Chuck Joyner. He wanted me to come on and explain black and white photography. He said to me, he'd been listening to one of the photoactive episodes and I had said something like, you have to get black and white photography. And he said, I don't get it. So he asked me to, to go on and talk about it. And I think understanding the color doesn't exist, working in black and white makes photographers look differently at their photos and the world. Absolutely. And, and, and so, I, I mean, it's, it's funny. I, I, I did, I sort of did the same thing as, as, as you with, with cameras. I, when when Leica first announced their monochrome, I I I made fun of it. Uh, I, I can't remember if we talked about this before or not, but but it was like it makes no sense. Why would you get a digital camera that doesn't shoot color, right? Because you can always just make a color conversion. And I didn't get it until I actually sat down with one and started shooting with one, and it forced me to reframe my entire thinking about photography, not thinking about color per se, but thinking about luminance um, and, and just tracking, you know, the brightness of, of light values in certain places. And it brought me back to all the work by Ansel Adams and his zone system. And, and it was almost like I rediscovered film photography, black and white film photography, which I used to do. You know, I'm, I'm sitting looking at my old Leica M6 up in the corner. Um, but when the digital revolution happened, you know, it was like color. And then, you know, I look back at a lot of my early, you know, sort of raw conversions and they're oversaturated and they're really ugly. And, and, and then I sort of got to a normalization phase in my photography. And then, and then I started shooting black and white again with this monochrome. And, and it, it did. It was, it was, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but it was sort of a revelation. And, and it completely changed my relationship to photography again. And from a from a from a color perspective, where where we started talking, I mean, it, it is kind of interesting because, you know, we we think of the world uh, as having color in it, but that's really sort of a a neurobiological construct, right? Because all all color is is just electromagnetic energy at at different wavelengths that our nervous systems have evolved to uh, to discriminate. And uh, those different discriminations are represented as 
colors in our heads. And so, so yeah, from a strict physics standpoint, there is no color in the universe. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that sort of, that throws people for a loop because, you know, that's our, that's our reality, right? E even if you're colorblind, e even, even if, you know, you have, you know, one of the forms of, of colorblindness, um, you know, where, where you're missing one of the cone pigments, there's still color in your world. And so that's, that's the reality that we live in. But what our brains do, I mean, our brains are sort of sitting in this black box of a skull that we've got. And, and our brains don't know anything about the outside world unless our sensory systems tell it. And so, so what our brains are doing is they're constantly sort of synthesizing their own reality based upon the inputs that we have. And so our visual nervous system evolved over 150 million years to, um, to discriminate wavelength, electromagnetic wavelength energy, right? Uh, and it does it in a lot of different ways that uh, some are conscious, some are unconscious. So I guess, you know, you, you'd have to sort of go back and think about the neurobiology of, of our retinas to sort of understand why we think that there's color in the world. Am I right to say that when I look out at the grass in front of my house, I see green, and that's because all the other wavelengths are absorbed by the grass and the green is reflected by the grass? Correct. Yeah. So, so there are pigments in the grass, chlorophylls, um, and so what light comes in, electromagnetic light comes in from the sun, and certain wavelengths are absorbed by by the chlorophylls and and other properties of the grass other proteins and starches um and then the green wavelengths are reflected and those green wavelengths are are you know in a range 3 to 500 nanometers uh that come in and hit photoreceptors cone photoreceptors in in our eyes uh that have opsin molecules that are tuned to receive they're like little antennas they're tuned to receive photons of that energy wavelength. And so when those photons hit those conopsins, those conopsins conformationally change and create a biochemical cascade in the photoreceptor that signals to the downstream neurons in the retina that, hey, I've seen something, right? And, and even then, there's no color information in that. The color comes from comparison. So, so how the retina is is wired is that it's 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 like any other part of your nervous system. Our nervous systems are evolved to be difference engines. They compare one input versus another. And so the green photons are coming in, uh, and they're being compared with red photons or, or photons in the red wavelength, what we perceive as red. Uh, and photons in the blue wavelength, and what we perceive as blue, um, and it makes a calculation, and it weights the information, and the those circuits that come through signal to our brain what we perceive of as green. Um, the remarkable thing is that people generally agree on what green is, and what red is, and what blue is. I'm going to disagree because I have done a number of cross-cultural studies 
Back in the day, I had a blue shirt. My ex-wife told me it was green. She was mm -hmm. French. Um, there is a there's a big overlap in the blue green space in different cultures. So people don't really agree. However, they agree within a given culture where the shift from blue to green is. And obviously, the, famously, the, there are cultures that only have two colors or four colors or whatever as well. So, so some of that may actually have a neurobiological basis. So, particularly among women. Right. So there's there's solid scientific evidence. So so most humans are uh, tritonopes. Right. We we have red, green, and blue colors that we see. Some humans, particularly males, are uh, are color blind and they're missing one of the wavelengths of cones um, because um, the they have a gene defect and we don't have a backup copy. Right. Uh, whereas women have two X chromosomes, and it turns out the opsin genes are carried on the X chromosomes. So if one of their X chromosomes goes bad, they generally have a backup, right? So that's why typically more men are colorblind than women. However, there can be mutations uh, that uh, basically duplicate one of the middle wavelength cones, and in and in women who have two X chromosomes. They get uh, basically four kinds of cones, and so they have an additional ability to discriminate hue, right? So, so yeah, you might have said to your wife, if if your wife was was uh, tetrachromat, um, you know, oh, you know, check out my blue shirt, and she's like, no, buddy, that's green, right? And because that was literally her reality, right? It could also be cultural. There is a cultural element. I've read some studies about this. What color is turquoise, right? Is it blue? Is it green? It yeah. depends on, you know, sort of the cultural sort of upbringing on, on where you sort of weight that. You and I, we have monochrome cameras and we know that color doesn't exist. Can a photographer shooting color take advantage of that knowledge to change their photography? I'm thinking you mentioned the term luminance and the sensor in a, like a monochrome camera measures the luminance. It doesn't have the three red, blue, green sensors, the 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 Bayer yeah. what's it called Bayer. the Bayer yeah. filter yeah. right that interpolates it's just detecting luminance so even a color photographer if they're if they can train themselves to pay attention to luminance more than color wouldn't that make a difference in the way that they take pictures in some ways absolutely so um, for a lot of that uh, I mean I think the best education there is is to again go back to Ansel Adams books, right? So, so he wrote a series of books, you know, the negative, the print, you know, the, um, and, you know, what you can do shooting black and white photography, you, yes, you, you have photons coming in and it treats them as, as luminance, but you can still filter electromagnetic information um, to, to, the, to the, like a monochrome sensor, right? So in, in the old school days, you know, Ansel Adams, what he would do to get those dramatic dark skies is he'd put a, a red or an orange filter in front of his black and white film uh, camera. And what that would do is that would take all the blue, all the photons in the blue electromagnetic range, and it would filter them out. And so, so the skies, you know, would, would dramatically turn dark and, and give those photos the, that, that sort of feeling that, that the photos were somehow made at night. Um, and so, so yeah, you can, you, you can play around all the, and in fact, I mean, if, if you worked, so, so there's a field called the remote sensing industry, 
uh, it developed um, in starting basically in the 1960s. Um, in the 1960s, uh, uh, Russia and the United States were in the space race, and we were starting to send up satellites. And the United States uh, developed a satellite uh, called the Corona satellite. And, and this was a really cool little satellite, and uh, it had film canisters in it, and it would overfly uh, parts of China and parts of the Soviet Union and Cuba and, and take pictures. Um, the problem was, you know, it's, it's a film camera in outer space. Uh, and so, so when the film roll was full, the satellite would eject a film canister and the film canister would fall through the atmosphere and pop a parachute. And then a plane would come along with a couple of probes on it and a wire stretched up between. And they'd snatch <laughs> yep. the parachute in midair and, and reel this parachute and film canister into the cargo bay, fly it back to California where the film was developed. Uh, and then they flew the the film to uh, Langley, uh, where the CIA and the nascent National Reconnaissance Office um, then interpreted the, the 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 film. And so most of those shots were just like pure, you know, they were just photographs taken through a lens. Later on, uh, as as remote sensing photography became digital, people realized that you could you could start segmenting the world. Uh, with spectral information by putting filters in front of the cameras. And everything on the surface of the Earth reflects electromagnetic radiation in different wavelengths, according to, you know, whether it's dirt, whether it's oil-bearing dirt, whether it's gold-bearing strata, you know, whether they're uh, healthy trees versus sick trees, whether uh, it's concrete or granite disguised, you know, or, or you know, concrete disguised to look like granite, um, you know, or titanium or aluminum, everything reflects light differently. And so, so a bunch of smart people realized that you could put a series of filters in front of these cameras uh, and find spectral fingerprints that correlated with each one of these individual things. And so they could look for that particular spectral fingerprint. Right. So if you were like trying to find the extent of a, of a submarine base hidden on the Kamchatka Peninsula, you were looking for the signature of, of concrete. Right. Even though it looked like granite, even though they had stuff planted on it. Um, same thing with titanium versus aluminum. Um, you, you can sort of segment this sort of stuff. And, and it turns out, you know, it's, it's really useful for things like looking at the health of forests. Um, but it's all filtered data. And so from a, from a photography standpoint, you can think of photography as the same sort of thing. You can filter, filter the data of your world through, diff through different kinds of filters that you put in front of the camera lens. And, and another example is like when the, when, the, when the Leica M8 came out, right? So this was a, a Leica's crop frame sensor. I forget what year that was. The, the, the CCD sensor um, was uh, abnormally sensitive to infrared light. Uh, and so what a lot of people realized that they could do is they could put uh, a blocking filter on the front of the camera that blocked out almost all information except infrared light. And the infrared light would make it through to the sensor and they could make infrared exposures um, with, with this camera. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, photography is fun that way. You can, even though you've got a black and white camera, you can, you, you can play with all sorts of filters and, and it teaches you how to sort of think about segmenting the world to create the image that you'd like or you want. 
it, it also teaches you the color wheel. Yeah. Right? That a red filter has an effect on green and a yellow filter has an effect on blue and all of that. I was listening to a podcast, well, a program from the BBC, the Arts and Ideas podcast, technically, and they had an episode on color. I was listening to this recently. And the person was pointing out that chlorophyll and hemoglobin are almost exactly the same chemically. They just have a different metal that makes it a different color. They were talking about the origins of art that was very often using reds and ochres and com comparing the redness and the greenness of things that there is that relationship that for us, while they're opposites, they do seem to fit together, don't they? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting thinking about the history of imagery uh, through, 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 through the lens of art, right? So uh, for a long time, for instance, and, and actually this is even true in nature, there isn't a whole lot of blue out there, right? There's a lot of red, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of yellow, there's a lot of browns, uh, and that's, that's reflected in the pigments that we see. And if you go back in time, even, even back to the Roman or Greek era, you know, a couple thousand years ago, um, there was very little blue. And in fact, blue was derived from certain um, sea, uh, sea snail organisms uh, and, and other organisms. And, uh, and it was very rare, and so it was very precious. And so, so the blue pigments that the Egyptians used or the Romans used or even into the Renaissance age uh, were fairly rare. Um, and in the animal kingdom, blue is also fairly rare. Um, and and so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to sort of think about how color has been represented that way and how our um, perception of color, particularly, uh, particularly through history, is. So, so, so it's like there's, there's a couple of artists online. I forget how to pronounce her name. Amaral, uh, I, uh, I'd have to find her Twitter handle. But, but she, she's sort of famous for taking a lot of black and white images and colorizing them. And and this is sort of a it's an interesting insight because a lot of us sort of see images from the 1940s, 1930s, 1920s, 1910s, and we think of the world as black and white back then, right? That's that's our frame of reference. Um, but it's always been sort of this multi-spectral world that that we see as color, and and so it's 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 interesting to me to see her work appreciated by by a world that sort of has a new level of insight uh in into into what things actually looked like back then i like to talk about the semiotics of black and white pictures of the fact that they do for us represent a certain historical past um i think it was only in the late 70s that you had newspapers in the united states had color photos usa today was probably the first right. one and so all of my younger high school years and all that was black and white photos. And even the New York Times didn't get color yeah. for a long time after that. So when we see a black and white photo, we, we instinctively think that a black and white photo is old, right. even if we see it right. today. And when, when I'm looking at pictures from Ukraine right now in black and white, the, the starkness of that compared to, let's say, Dresden yeah. in 1945, that they're, they're showing that history rhymes, and it's reinforced by the fact that there's no color in some of those photos. Yeah. I, in fact, the first time I walked through Berlin, um, there's, there's still in parts of Berlin, there's, there's a lot of 
damage from World War II. And uh, you could see bullet holes in, in columns and walls as you're walking down the street. And you realize that, yeah, you know, that was that was open combat where, where people's houses were and people lived and people shopped. And, and I, I did an interesting experiment. I shot some photos deliberately in black and white. And, and I pushed the ISO to make it, you know, a bit more grainy. And, and I'll have to see if I can dig those up. But yeah, looking at them later, it was, it was a little, it was emotionally interesting because it was evocative. It, you know, you, you were, you were, the buildings are the same. The battle damage is the same. And, and yet it was a photo made in, in, you know, the 1990s versus or early 2000s versus, you know, 1944. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's um, <clears throat> the, what's happening in Ukraine is incredibly reminiscent of that, you know, um, particularly, you know, all the refugees we've got, you know, I mean, this is, this is going to be the largest refugee migration um, since World War II. And interestingly to me, this is probably going to be the best documented war in history, um, just by virtue of all the cameras available, all the smartphones available with good quality cameras in them, and and all the footage. And that in itself is is changing how the world perceives. I mean, I mean it's this visual communication, right? That's that's changing how the world perceives what's actually going on. People can people can see what's going on and, and, and form opinions that, you know, back in World War II, we had to wait weeks, you know, months in some cases in order to get news. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 been interesting, tr- troubling and, and, and yet interesting at the same time. Another interesting historical thing is you may remember a few years ago, five, six years ago, someone colorized a very famous picture of Abraham Lincoln sitting. And seeing that in color was a shock because you're used to Abe Lincoln being in black and white. And there's this historical distance that you feel because of the black and white. And all of a sudden there he is in color, like he's in your sitting room. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and vice versa, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, I mean, like I said, this monochrome camera, you make portraits of people in, in black and white, and there is a timelessness about it, right? Be, because, you know, again, again, this is our sort of cultural frame that's been established by the limits of technology. Right, by the origins of photography being in black and white. We see this a lot even in, in movies, not just black and white versus color, but you think of the 1970s and you think of things that are a bit more yellowed, a bit more washed out. Absolutely. And and our memory of that is based on the photos of the time. And so as you go back in time looking at the photos, you just sort of think of, well, the 1960s were more vibrant in color and the 1970s were not so much because, I mean, obviously there was a whole lot of brown in the 1970s, brown and yellow, just normally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but But our impressions of that time, especially if you didn't live through it, is so affected by the photography and by the movies. If you shoot a movie now that's set in the 70s, most of those movies are going to have some sort of, you know, bleach bypass or some, some uh, you know, effect on the look of it to sort of reinforce that idea. This is the 70s. This isn't us shooting in Burbank in 2020, right? Right. But But the interesting thing there is that 
you know, the electromagnetic spectrum hasn't changed, right? The <laughs> spectrum has not changed totally. from, you know, from, from 1910 to, to, to 2022. Um, just our, our, our technologic capacity to document the electromagnetic spectrum has changed. But also our perception of photographs of the past through entropy, because certain colors fade right. more than others. Right. So mm -hmm. if you've got family photos from the 70s, they're fading toward the yellows and the oranges. Yeah. If you've got something older, they're, they're fading even more. So we have this color shift that goes through time, which is which is frozen now in digital. This will never happen again. Right. It's not exactly frozen because you know, we have different color profiles. We the 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 digital photos that were made 15 years ago don't have as many colors um that are being represented as the the color models we have now. So even even that I mean, it's it's less perceptually because of what we're looking at them, with the screens that we're looking on them, and all of that. But there's even like I don't know, digital entropy. Yeah, is that even a thing? But well, I mean, there's bit rot certainly. Um, yeah, but... yeah, but that's different. But but I think what Jeff is pointing about color spaces and even limited resolution means that if you've got a photo with 256 or 32,000 colors from 15 years ago, and today you've got billions of colors, it is going to be different. And the resolution is going to have more detail. So it is going to look kind of like those Bende photos from the newspaper yeah. in, in compared to the current yeah. type of photos we look at. Well, yeah. I, I can even go back to like, like in my blog, I've got some photos from, uh, I had one of the first quick take cameras, Apple quick take. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so Apple, yeah, people forget about this, right? But Apple shipped a digital camera you know, way back when, um, and, uh, in the nineties, yeah. in the nineties, it was and, the first consumer digital camera, wasn't it? I think, I, I believe it was. Yeah. And and then I, they might've teamed up with Fuji. Uh, but, but I think Apple was the first one that came out and they called it the quick take, quick take 100. And it was a really sort of innovative sort of style. And then for the quick take 200, it became a more sort of conventional style camera, but, but those were eight bit, 256 color value images and mm -hmm. and i can go back in my blog when was that you know I, I can go back to like 96 or whenever that was but i was shooting with that a lot well and they were tiny too i mean according to mac tracker the first one came out in january 1994 and it was 640 by 480 pixels yeah and even the quick take 200 was i think it was 640 by 480 i don't think that had changed um no that didn't change and and so i had that in in the mid to late 90s and and I was shooting with that, and I looked back at those photos, and it, it had a plastic lens, and uh, and so so there's spectral filtering that comes through just by virtue of of the plastics that that filter out the world there, uh, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of blue and violet that sort of comes through on on those images that you know that is not in in more advanced imaging chips it does color management better. And we have more bins that we can put, you know, uh, you know, where I, I think a lot of cameras now are shipping with, you know, 12 bit, 12 bit imaging. Um, and so so the dynamic range is going up. And yeah, so that's that's all interesting. And then, and then you know, fads come and go. And so, you know, like with the rise of Instagram, filters were all the rage. Right. Yeah. And so 
and filters often to make photos look older. Right. The 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 torn edges, the the grain, the 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 sepia, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Which interestingly is the same kind of thing you hear in EDM music, where they put the cracking sound of vinyl over it to make it sound old. It's interesting. I mean, his, history rings, and and we start we start adopting inefficiencies uh, or actually engineering in inefficiencies to make things more interesting uh, to us, which, which, which is always kind of fascinating. It's hard to not think, though, that shooting in black and white is in some way rebelling. Now, there is a vibrant uh, in, in art photography, there is a vibrant black and white photography mm-hmm. scene. There are lots of people. But for, for most people with a smartphone, or, you know, most enthusiast photographers, shooting black and white can be seen as rebellious because it's just not normal. Uh, it reminds, you know, there's this Macbeth film on Apple TV with Denzel Washington and Francis McNorman, which is shot in, in black and white, uh, 4-3 aspect ratio, trying to look old. The problem is it doesn't look old enough because the detail is so good in 4K yeah. <laughs> that it doesn't have that old, you know, rounded front TV screen yeah. look in it. But I, I've seen some criticism. It's like, why shoot in black and white, right? Um, and I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes, which I use in my Instagram and Glass profiles. Uh, I remember that in 2001, Jean-Luc Godard was uh, interviewed at the Cannes Film Festival, and he had just released a film that was mostly in black and white with some color. And someone asked him, why do you shoot in black and white? And he said, life is in color, but reality is in black and white. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. Uh- because it's like... The luminance is there. The color is an extra layer on top of it. Yeah, and and for me, a lot of times the color is a distraction, right? So so the thing about shooting in black and white is that you're making a commitment. So particularly, particularly, I think a lot of photographers who are starting out want to capture the whole thing, right? And then they're like, okay, I'll capture everything, and then and then if I need to do edits and post, then I'll do that, right? And and what shooting in black and white does is it forces you to think differently and make a commitment to excluding information, right? You're willfully going into a situation where you're like, nope, I don't want that. And, and, and you're, you're starting to push things away so that you can focus on the thing that makes the most sense. And, you know, like, you know, directors like Vim Vendors, right? You know, they, you know, in, in, in a lot of the, his films, you know, he's deliberately gone the black and white in fact you know in um uh wings of desire right i mean they jump back and forth between black and white and color uh and um and and this this is it's it's an old uh i, I think actually i haven't seen wings of desire in a long time did they shoot that in black and white and color i believe it's only black and white maybe it's only black and white the the idea though is is that you know i mean by shooting in black and white you're making a commitment to start pre-visualizing the world Right. So so when you make an image in black and white, there's a couple of ways to go about it. One, you can walk around to the camera and just shoot the world in black and white. And, and this is a good learning exercise. Right. How does how does the world in the absence of color look on the digital screen? And like I said, that's a good exercise to do. But the other way to approach it is to deliberately go out and look at a scene and pre visualize what you think it's going to look like in black and white. And and again, going back to Ansel Adams, what what he did was he pre-visualized. He knew the the impact of putting a filter to filter out certain parts of the electromagnetic spectrum would have. 
and 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 he was making a commitment. He was shooting eight and a half by eleven film, and hauling around these sixty pound cameras, and and pre visualizing the scene that he wanted, putting a filter in front of the camera, figuring out what his exposure was going to be, and then making the exposure. Um, and and so it's it's it still sort of feels like a cheat shooting digital, you know, in in that you're not you're not making that level of commitment to making an image anymore, but but you're still sort of pre-visualizing things. To riff on something you said before, a beginning photographer wants to take a picture of the world as it is, and someone shooting in black and white wants to take a picture of the part of the world they want to show. Right, right. So, you know, a fun exercise, uh, for instance, is just going to look at shadows. Shadows and angles and buildings and... You know, walking around in in New York, in downtown New York City, uh, and... uh, with with the sun out and it's reflecting off the buildings, there's a shocking amount of color in even in just reflected light. You know, you can look at uh, chromatic aberration as as light is reflecting off windows and bouncing off steel and bouncing off glass and and patterning itself on the ground. Um, and you can see all that and then choose to throw it away, right? Uh, and and just focusing on the luminance. And that exercise, ironically, that exercise also teaches you how to see color, um, if, if, if I'm, I'm going to sort of come full circle around this, because it, it, it focuses, it sort of forces you to, to segment your world uh, and sort of start viewing things in different ways. And so, so you can say, oh, you know, look at all the red in, in this particular field of view. Um, I want to filter that out. Or, you know, if you're standing in front of a field of flowers and you really want to make those yellow flowers pop and you're going to make a black and white image, you know, you, you might you might deliberately put a filter in front of them to sort of enhance the yellow and suppress all the green around you. Um, and and th- those are the kinds of exercises that sort of moving back and forth between black and white and color can can do for you and and give you an appreciation again all color is is this electromagnetic magnetic spectrum and and it has components and you can pick and choose whichever components you want to suppress or enhance okay brian jones thank you very much we're going to have you on again sometime soon to explain why light doesn't exist We're just gonna we're just gonna reduce 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 until finally we're gonna have a very short episode that says None of us exist. Nothing Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. A nihilist episode. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? So I'm going to do some traveling this year. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is how to bring less stuff. And so I ordered from Amazon this, I'm sure it's, you know, some Chinese company. Uh, it's U-Comics, U-C-O-M-X. It's a three-in-one wireless charger. It will allow me to charge my iPhone 13, which has MagSafe, my Apple Watch, and my Apple AirPods Pro, which has a little chargeable case, all on one mat that folds up into three different parts, and I just have to have one cable connecting it. Apple tried to do this a couple of years ago and then eventually released a travel uh, solution that only has two things, and it's really expensive. So. The company Mophie also makes something similar to this, but it's $100 and $150 or something. 
So I took a little gamble and I bought this one. It's $40. And from what I can tell so far, it doesn't charge as quickly as most things. But if things are just sitting overnight in my hotel room, then that's perfectly fine. So uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, obviously. It's UCOMX Nano 3-in-1 Wireless Charger Magnetic Foldable Charging Station. <laughs> Easily memorable. Easily memorable, yeah. <laughs> what do you have this week? Um, I bought a new toy. It's the Loop Deck Live. Ah. So... Now, I believe you had a loop deck a couple of years ago that you had for review. The original loop deck was like a big, wide keyboard with lots of dials and sliders and all this. This is much smaller. This is pretty much the size of Apple's current uh, Magic Trackpad. It has 12 buttons, 12 touch sensitive buttons, six dials, three on the left, three on the right. Then it has eight buttons on the bottom which change the workspaces you get in everything up above. It's a pretty complex device to configure. Uh, there are um, there are pre-configured sets of commands for certain apps, but I don't necessarily want to use it the way it's configured. For now, I've set it up for Logic Pro for when I edit podcasts to have the keyboard shortcuts that I use the most often. It's really easy when you've got the keyboard shortcut with an icon or a label instead of remembering which keys to press on the keyboard. I'm going to set it up for Capture One with the dials for different sliders because I like the idea of turning the dials instead of using my finger on a trackpad. It You get more... Um, latitude. It is complicated to set up. It's not cheap. I think I'm thinking it's US around two hundred fifty dollars. It's two twenty nine pounds in in the UK. But it's a nice little device, and you can set it up so uh, whichever app is frontmost on your Mac or I assume on Windows as well, it automatically switches to the settings for that app. So for now, I've only set it up for Logic and some stuff for the Finder. But in the coming weeks, I'm going to start uh, setting it up for other apps. And I'll see if it really saves time. For now, it does. It's another device to think about, but it's a different level of abstraction than keyboard shortcuts. So it's called the Loop Deck Live. And the, the buttons on it, those are like little LED screens or LCD screens that change based on what you're doing, right? Right. They change contextually. And as I said, you've got eight buttons on the bottom to change workspaces. Nice. So you can have multiple pages. I think you can swipe across the touch buttons. Um, you can have hundreds and hundreds of commands set up. That's part of the problem, though. If there's too many, it's not helpful. Yeah. You have to configure it so on any given screen, the commands that you use are there. Gotcha. Sounds cool. Okay. Okay. That's enough. Until next time. Till next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast.